Welcome to the Alternative Design Podcast, where we empower creatives to rethink space and how it's designed. I'm your host, Kaylin Reed, a Metro Detroiter, a former interior designer turned brand ambassador, and I'm inspired by the forward-thinking concepts found in the margins of our design community. Join us as we go deeper than the mainstream conversations buzzing around the industry and present an alternative way to think about how we can design for a better human experience. Choice is a power that in the workplace is linked to higher productivity rates, better efficiency, and improved overall wellness. You can choose when, where, and how you work in this newly digital era. It's not just workplace. We've seen this trend in hospitality, healthcare, and education. Designing for choice empowers the individual. But something we don't often ask is who deserves the power to choose? The answer may surprise you. The prison architectural landscape is embedded with values of punishment, security, and the loss of choice. But does it have to? In this episode, we explore a preventative, a restorative, and a deconstructive solution that will challenge what we think design is and what it can accomplish. In this episode, we introduce you to a sheriff, a professor, a student, a former inmate, who all contributed to the discussion that explores alternatives that could radically change how we understand the design of carceral spaces. This is episode eight, our season finale. Get out of jail with freedom. In our last episode, we found out just how easy it is for anyone to experience a mental health crisis, especially for the 10 million adults in America who suffer from a diagnosed mental illness. It's often a slow building of one stressor after another until finally something like dropping your wallet at Target becomes the breaking point. When emotions run high, behavior can escalate, which when demonstrated in public typically results in two forms of action after the call is made to the authorities. The first is taking the person suffering to an emergency department, which, in our world's current state, is most likely at full capacity with long wait times and overtaxed nurses that are just not able to provide specialized mental health care services. The second option is to be entered into the criminal justice system. In Episode 7, we explored that first response and chased down some of the logical questions that followed. Questions like, Could design support alternative solutions that offer communities more mental health resources while simultaneously breaking down stigmas? Could these solutions come in the form of pop-up crisis stabilization centers and shipping containers? Could long-term healthcare facilities be centrally located in a downtown wellness campus? But in this episode, we wanted to explore that second scenario, the one where a person suffering a mental health crisis could be taken to jail. If you recall from the previous episode, Stacy Root made this comment. I mean, jail is going to be the worst possible place for someone suffering like this. This is where I tell you to stop here and go back and listen to episode seven if you haven't gotten the chance. And while you may be asking, what does this have to do with design? We feel that this is a classic example of how design can help champion even the most complex societal issues that have been held by longstanding traditional thinking. And while my investigation began with understanding the relationship between mental health and how to provide an alternative solution to the criminal justice system, we naturally started asking more questions. (laughs) Like, 
could design alongside community partnership offer an alternative solution to a prison sentence? Is there a restorative justice model that could be explored? And how could design help facilitate it? Can a humane prison actually exist? This summer, I went to Nashville, Tennessee to interview someone who led the charge to building another option and is seeing the benefits of this decision in his own community. What you're about to hear is a section of my interview with Sheriff Darren Hall, where we discuss the design inspiration behind the Behavioral Care Center that opened in 2020. Let's give a round of applause to Sheriff Darren Hall. Thank him for coming tonight. And thank you to those on Instagram Live that are joining us this evening. Um, so this is Sheriff Darren Hall. And again, it's so great to have you here, Sheriff. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. So let's kink things off a little bit with understanding a bit about your career in law enforcement. When I was 16 years old, I didn't like school much and I surely didn't like to read, but I read this book, Helter Skelter. Most of us know that book or some of us know that book. And I remember to this day being fearful. I mean, this man, if you don't know, Charles Manson was five foot two, and he eventually masterminds multiple murders in California and a lot of other things that went on. And I really would say fear. The fear of that drove me to, to want to know why people do what they do. At 18 years old, I asked to, to go visit a prison and ride with a police officer. I'm sure my parents were proud, but I ran around the facility and understood to try to figure out what's going on and why are people doing what they're doing and what can we do to help and what would change that. I can tell you after 30 plus years, I know why people do what they do. Uh, I'm not special. The data is really simple. I mean, nine out of 10 people who are arrested today are addicted to a substance. That's the truth. It's not an excuse. And so if you do the math, that is why people do what they do. Mental health, which we're going to talk about, right. is another major component of that. And so I'm very fascinated in why people do what they do, not who did it. Right. Definitely. So according to the World Health Organization, it's estimated that roughly 450 million people worldwide suffer from a mental health and behavioral disorder. These disorders are especially prevalent uh, in prison populations. So a lot of these disorders could be present before admission to prison and maybe further exacerbated by the stress of imprisonment. So help us understand how much of an issue this has been for the Nashville community and how it impacted your decision to build the Behavioral Care Center. The world of mental health, I've done a lot of research in this, the world, the reality of this in this country is that in the 60s, our country said, let's deinstitutionalize mental health hospitals. When you shut down hospitals, you build jails and prisons. You can look at it. It's clearly documented. And so we run the largest in every community. The largest mental health system is your jail or your prison. It's true in this country. L.A. Jail tonight is the largest mental health institution. Every city is dealing with that. The sad part is we told the public, we, the society, that we were going to destigmatize them. Now we not only tell them that they're mentally ill, we say you're criminal. Mm. And here's your illness diagnosis, so good luck and move on. So it is a total failure. We get labeled often with over-incarceration, and I knew that. I mean, I'd been in this line of work. But one of the things that you don't know is most countries would not take a naked man to the jail. I'm just using this, although I don't have to make up stories. Right. Everything you hear, I promise, wasn't made up. Most countries would say, hey, there is a person who needs help. You would call a phone number. That phone number would then know that you say, I need help. You know mm -hmm. what? I'm not judging anybody. I just know how society works. I can prove it to you. Walk out here tonight and fall over and grab your heart, land in the parking lot. They will call you an ambulance, I promise. 
walk out here and start singing to the elephants that are flying over and yelling, you love Elvis, and I'll tell you who will be called. Okay? Blame me, blame whoever, but don't blame the police. You know why? The police are called. Then they show up. You can't be naked. There's a law against it. You may like it, but it's still illegal. You can't do it. Mm. So what happens is the police show up. It's easy to blame them. They're not all right, but neither are the callers. So then what happens is that person is taken to a system which is horrible. It's called the criminal justice system. Unfortunately, never should happen. So we then end up with these people in a system that they don't understand. And guess what? A lot of people like to go after the criminal justice system. I don't disagree with you. Take the money away and build what you want to build. But it's our fault. Society has done that. Maybe this moves the conversation. But it's easy. It's really easy to criticize the people who show up. Yeah. My point is, call someone else. That's the issue. Many believe that resources that are devoted to imprisonment should instead go to justice reinvestment. So medical and social services, housing, education. And it's a hard thing to wrestle with, right? Because we're all on different sides of of the political divide and have our opinions on, on how that is. But really, no matter what your stance is, there is a real and critical opportunity here to make contemporary prisons more humane and responsive to the goal of rehabilitation. And that's really what we want to talk about tonight is the power that design has to truly change behavior and bring about a restorative justice model because that, I think, is the the goal. So when did you begin to notice that the criminal justice system really needed to look at implementing change to reform perhaps some of the traditional methods and stigmas around incarceration, especially as it relates to, to mental illness? One of the things that really moved me, and it was a bizarre feeling, was I walked into to the prison going around seeing everything, and I walked into, they opened the door at 18, they opened the door, and there's a big, a big shop, big warehouse, and there were inmates in there, and they were making actually license plates. Mm. This is a long time ago. Those license plates, and I can see them stacking those license plates. And I remember many years would go by, and I remember hearing my family, friends, others, most people in society, I think, would say things like this. Well, I think it's really good they're doing something productive. It's fair. I don't disagree with that. Sure. The next thing was, you know what, and wasn't said, but ultimately it saved a lot of money because it believe, you were not paying people to make license plates. So you can believe either one of those. That may be fair and sure. may be right. But I have learned many years later, and I've said this a bunch of times, that we've released a bunch of addicted license plate makers. Because what we were focused on as a society was getting cheaper license plates. And we were focused on things like using labor to help society. We forgot all about the individual that we were trying to do something about. And so to me, I don't care if you make a license plate or not. I I care that your addiction or your illness or whatever it is that led you here has been addressed in some form. Yeah, definitely. So you then, with the Behavioral Care Center um, that opened in 2020, sort of took public funds at that spot and really reallocated it towards providing an alternative, right? So tell us about that. So Nashville was at a crossroad. We needed to build a new facility. We didn't need more beds. We had been declining in beds for years, but the central hub of our operation was overused and old. We were going to build a new one. So I went and asked, some people said I lied. I don't care. Uh, I went and said I needed a new jail. I need a new detention center. And because deep down I knew we needed something that wasn't what we had, so we took the money, we built a detention center that was somewhat what you would call a booking room, and a processing and a medical facility and a housing facility for people who were going to court. 
And then I, I chiseled off the money to go build what I believe we needed, which was 30% of the population coming to jail tonight are diagnosed mentally ill when they get there. That's higher for women than men. So that's what we did. And we built a behavioral care center, 30 beds for men, 30 for women. So uh, the beds are for 30 days, 30 males, 30 females. Uh, the idea is hopefully they are stabilized. The program does not release anybody to the streets of Nashville jails. We release people all day long right back into the streets that have all sorts of needs. This will not allow you to do that. You're handed off to another care provider, family, friend, support system. So we see a lot of potential in it. Before the interview, I was able to tour the women's portion of the Behavioral Care Center in downtown Nashville. While I couldn't record my experience inside the facility, here's what I saw. The appearance of the building as I approached it felt very businesslike and well-scaled. I wasn't intimidated by its size or location in the community. In fact, the location in the community was right downtown, something we talked about in our last episode relating to accessibility and bringing these places of healing out of the neighborhood fringes. We were taken to the community area and I was instantly struck by how much natural light flooded the space. Some of the ladies had gathered on some soft seating in front of the TV. Beside me was a small outdoor courtyard where Bible verses and messages of hope were drawn in chalk on the ground. I was told by the facility director how well loved that space is by the ladies who feel a sense of comfort from a familiar looking park bench where they often slept. The space was painted in uplifting blue tones and felt modern, airy, and clean. Along the back wall was a large-scale custom mural of a local river. The facility was designed with the help of HOK in Chicago and construction was completed in 2020. Imagine someone suffering with a mental health crisis or an addiction being assessed by a professional and coming to this type of facility to recover. A facility where you have direct access to case management, counseling, and medical staff. So if you're a designer, particularly in the justice sector, here's what the sheriff had to say about who needs to be at the design table in regards to not only jails, but prison facilities. I do believe the end user, not just the sheriff or the whatever, but, mm -hmm. but I think the reality of the person who's gonna be, what are you trying to provide? I mean, mm -hmm. most jails and prisons are concrete and bars. That's what they are. And there's really no space, there's no, pro and so what, what and most people who know me would tell you this. I mean, I've been pretty aggressive that, that are people who work and do what we do know best. I don't mean about design, but know best for what we're trying to do. So therefore, let us come to you, designers, and say, we're trying to treat people in a different way. We want to provide a space that allows. And so if that conversation can be had and turn it over to you guys who know what design is about, mm -hmm. what worries me is government likes to go at it in a pretty low bid conscious method of yeah. let's just build the most beds you can build. Absolutely. And that's where we get in trouble of building what are warehouses basically with people in them. I just would encourage the people who you're trying to provide services for to be at the table. inspired by the sheriff rolling up his sleeves to solve a problem he saw in his community, even when it meant paving the way to design something completely different. The Behavioral Care Center is estimated to impact and divert 1,500 to 2,000 individuals annually from a jail sentence, 
where a treatment setting would be more appropriate than a correctional one. So when that phone call is made, it does not have to be an emergency room or jail. We can design spaces that could lead entire communities to shift their hearts and minds to better the human experience. If you'd like to hear the entire interview with the sheriff, head over to our Instagram page where we have it saved as a live event. And by the way, the state of Tennessee has come a long way from license plate making. Many jail inmates are now able to enroll in an apprenticeship program for a variety of trades and the partnering construction company guarantees to hire them upon their release. But I want to go back to something the sheriff asked. What are you trying to provide? This became a North Star for me as I began to ask more questions, not only about jails, but about prisons. And listen, I know how sensitive of a subject this is, and it unfortunately comes with a painful history and a great big political divide on what punishment is and should look like in the criminal justice system. We aren't here to make that divide any deeper. But like we've done all season, we're going to explore more options in the hopes of discovering a better design for all. So we're going to bring some more guests to the table to discuss the meaning of just design in carceral spaces. But from this point on, continue to ask yourself, what are we trying to provide? What do we want these spaces to do? What do we want the outcome to be? The three women you're about to meet all hail from the great state of Michigan and are connected by the University of Michigan's Master of Architecture Program's 2019 Winter Semester and the Prison Creative Arts Project. I'd like to first introduce you to Professor Ashley Lucas. Hi, I'm Ashley Lucas, and I am the former director of the Prison Creative Arts Project and a theater professor at the University of Michigan. And at PCAP, or the Prison Creative Arts Project, we work with currently and formerly incarcerated people to bring them into community collaborations with folks from the university and community volunteers to make art together. Yeah, I was one of those lucky people to work with, <laughs> Ashley. Next, I'd like to introduce you to Kemper Fagan. I am Kemper Fagan. I currently work at a place called EPAM Continuum as a space designer, but my background and the way I was introduced to PCAP and the carceral project was through my master's of architecture at Michigan. My background is in um, stereotypical architecture in both my undergrad and working for a few years between, but I was looking into getting my master's of social work and kind of stumbled into this world of um, humane design. And that's how I met both Mary and Ashley when I was really lucky to get to work with them. And finally, please meet Mary Heinen. I'm Mary Heinen. I am the project coordinator for PCAP, the Prison Creative Arts Project. I've been home 19 years from three life sentences in four women's prisons in Michigan, the very, very old Detroit House of Corrections, all the way through the current situation of women's here on Valley. I've got lots of prison stories about space and time and place and people. I'm delighted uh, to be asked to speak to it because a lot of people just don't want to hear it. Ashley's friend and colleague, Dr. Heather Thompson, was connected to the incredibly talented Jeff Mansfield and Michael Murphy of Mass Design Group and knew that they were coming to facilitate the 2019 Winter Studio for the Graduate Architectural Program at U of M. The theme of the course would bring focus to humane design, specifically as it relates to carceral spaces. And so she asked if Ashley might be willing to secure entry for the students in some of the local prisons. The only prison they were granted access to was the Federal Correctional Institution in Milan, Michigan. I called up our friend uh, 
Jonathan Cooper, who is the chaplain at Milan, and said, hey, do you think that the warden there would let us come in with these amazing architecture people and these students? And, and they were all over it. They said, yes, this sounds amazing. Bring them in. Let's talk to the to the men here and see what they think about architecture. And so Kemper and a group of other students got to go in there. And since we couldn't do something longer term or with more visits to other prisons, we also brought in a host of PCAP participants who are formerly incarcerated to talk to the students about their experiences living in Michigan prisons. So the students would say to the formerly incarcerated people, if you stood in this part of this room and you stretched out your hands, could you touch the walls? And that kind of thing was how they figured out measurements of what was going on inside the prison. And it was a beautiful experience for me and I think for everybody who was involved. We learned so much from each other collectively because we all brought different kinds of knowledge and skill sets. And it was this one-time amazing experiment because that was the only semester that the folks from Mass Design Group were working with us. I remember walking into the room and I had no idea who was going to be there. And I had just the vaguest notion of what was going to happen. But I saw students presenting and I watched Kemper and I watched students described a penitentiary that I lived in for 12 years and, you know, map it all out and talk about their experience, talk about how their concepts of redesigning the prison. My mind was blown. Before the American Revolution, jails were considered a holding place for a variety of people, including those awaiting punishment, debtors, and sometimes even witnesses for a trial. It was not considered punishment. And while the conditions weren't accommodating, it was meant to be a temporary solution. Around the time of the American Revolution, our modern concept of prisons emerged from the ideas of philosopher Jeremy Bentham. He believed that capital punishment, specifically the death penalty, was inhumane and should instead be replaced by a model where convicted criminals remain in a facility for extended periods of time. He drew up plans for what he called a panopticon, which featured prison guards in a central watchtower that offered 360-degree views of all holding cells. The idea was 24-7 surveillance that forced good behavior because you could be watched at any time. French philosopher Michel Foucault commented on this philosophical shift on punishment by expanding on Bentham's work on the panopticon. He noted that while prison structures brought about a seemingly gentler sort of punishment, what they actually do is render the body docile, which in turn creates a prison for the soul. We'll now fast forward to the 19th century, when prisons were largely constructed to house inmates. Many believed that criminals were a product of their environment and therefore must either be kept separated from fellow inmates or coexist in silence. Enter solitary confinement. While it was noted that several of the United States' first prisons were deemed a failure, it was still believed that solitary confinement was required to keep a prison operational. The Panopticon design eventually evolved into a radial design, featuring a central hub of watchmen with spokes that contained the holding cells, and by the 1930s, the telephone pole design was most popular. After World War II, prison construction boomed, and we're now brought into the timeline that Sheriff Hall shared with us earlier. The medical model of criminal justice reflected on society's idea that offenders were mentally ill and needed to be treated rather than punished. The result being to deinstitutionalize mental health care. But by the 1970s, the attitude shifted to one that was tough on crime and instead gave rise to the justice model, 
which holds that every criminal is personally responsible and the punishment should be varying lengths of long-term confinement. This era of the justice model is often accompanied by the term mass incarceration, reflective of the skyrocketing number of arrests and prison sentences that impacted marginalized communities disproportionately. I think the, the question is also, what are we expecting these facilities to do? And that then brings me to what are we designing them to do? Because right now we're designing them and they have been designed to not rehabilitate at all. And right, you know, and so I think when we think about how how can we design for a better system, we have to think about well, what do we need the system to do? Where are the places that someone got in a situation and they ended up in this place? That's one of the things that we talked about a lot in our studio was, you know, what are the skills that someone needed pre being in the prison? And how do we like use the base to actually teach that? Because that's how you help people from going back into the whole entire system. You have to design for solutioning to the problems in society rather than just designing as a holding cell. In the vast majority of prisons across the United States, people spend most of their days in a cell with limited activities that they're then transported to and from in a conscribed manner. Often, their personal identities are replaced by a number, and individuality is met with uniforms. What do we want these spaces to do? What should we design them to do? Prioritize safety? Render punishment? Should they target a successful re-entry for the 95% of inmates who will return to their communities after their sentence is complete? And if so, should we be looking at how these spaces impact behavior to achieve positive outcomes? So... I, I just think it's really important to remember that prisons use this language that says that everything that's happening to you inside the prison and the fact that you are in prison has to do with your own individual actions and behavior. And the truth is that we've cast this net that reigns in a whole lot of people for a variety of reasons, some of which are behavioral and some of them have to do with being in the wrong place at the wrong, wrong time, being Black or Indigenous or queer or illiterate in the wrong place at the wrong time, being a woman in the wrong place at the wrong time. And these are not, as the, the fiction of prisons culturally would have us believe, places that are really good at reconditioning how we operate in society. If anything, they make it harder for people to come back and be safe in communities because they take away people's agency. They take away people's ability to be responsible to their families, to have ordinary social interactions with people of the opposite gender, to, um, to have free will and use it in a way that keeps us all safe. Prisons deteriorate all of those things and the buildings in which we cage people have a lot to do with how that process happens. We weren't designing prisons. We were actually designing new ways to think about prisons spatially. So a lot of that centers around humane design, learning and asking questions, participatory design, which is asking people who are previously incarcerated and asking people who are currently incarcerated and actually being in a prison to understand what does it feel like. It was always about the idea of how can we improve the entire system through new ways of thinking about incarceration and what does that spatialize as? 
At Kimball International, our broad product portfolio across five distinct brands can support each customer's unique needs and ultimately blend the power of place and human experience in perfect harmony. This multi-branded mindset allows Kimball International the ability to offer a unique portfolio of brands, all to help you create inspirational places for working, healing, learning, hospitality, and home. Whether it's peanut butter and jelly, milk and cookies, or champagne and orange juice, there's nothing better than perfect harmony. Though many of our solutions stand on their own, our brands thrive when they play off of each other. This is why we invite you to specify all of our brands, not just one, giving you more options, more cohesiveness, more design possibilities than ever. In order to have a truly participatory design discussion, I asked Mary to share her experience with us because as designers leading with empathy, sometimes that requires hearing the uncomfortable. We want to provide a trigger warning as it does contain some intense subject matter, such as brief mention of violence and sexual abuse. Here's Mary. I was in the Florence Crane Women's Facility where we started PCAP in 1990 for almost 12 years. And Florence Crane was a state turn of the century school originally for children with disabilities. They had horrible names for kids back in the days, but they were children with disabilities that they wanted to keep out of sight. They found little straight baby straight jackets in the basement when the women moved in and were cleaning. They found places where, they, where blood was. They found yellowed newspaper article thumbtacked to the wall about the rape of a 12-year-old girl by a guard. Then it would have been called probably a, some kind of care worker. So it had a, a horrible history before we arrived. In the 50s, it was used for boys' detention. So when you went into the bathroom, all the stalls were real short and brown. Everything was like miniature. It was very uncomfortable. It's, you could smell urine in the walls when it rained. I found up in the window sills little buttons and little zippers and things that the kids had stashed in there for their treasures. It was big open rooms with beds, bunk beds and noise and no screens, flies and vermin were everywhere. It was full of rats. When it was raining, I could lay on my bunk and hear the rats running in the ceiling over the top of my head. Going to the kitchen, they would shimmy up the side of the pipe because they can crawl right up there. It was a facility that had was run on wells. It had three water wells. And the warden, Carol House, told me she had to close two of them because they were completely contaminated. They were toxic. The third one was loaded with bird droppings that was used for fertilizer on the farms and the fields around the facility that went into the water. And so women would have horrible headaches and high blood pressure from the salt. You know, bird droppings are a nitrate, it's a salt. And then they'd throw hard water softener on top of that. So they were putting a salt on top of a salt 
trying to hide it, trying to, you know, cover the smell and the taste. If you put a cup of water in the microwave, it had oil on it and it had little white crystals on the top of it. So if you lived there like I did with life and so many lifers, women that lived there, you could not avoid drinking the water because you were also bathing in it. You know, it was used in the kitchen. It was used to clean. You were completely contaminated. And then there were nitrates in, in not only in the water, but there was also asbestos in the ceiling and in the insulation in the pipes in the floor. So if any of the floors cracked open and you were walking by, you could look and you could see this old nasty tattered asbestos wrapped around the pipes and when you, the sun was coming in you know how you can see dust and little things moving around you could see little crystals of asbestos and in fact i have asbestos in my lungs now i was diagnosed with asbestos before they took me to surgery they said do you know you have asbestos in your lungs yeah i got a really good idea i do so it's the it, it's it's facilities that are not meant for human beings and you know, they spend millions and millions of dollars to do all sophisticated facilities with maximum security lockdown and all that. But the majority of prisoners in the United States are in old, decrepit places that are gross, gross violations of human rights. And I can't even begin to tell you how much that affects you for the rest of your life. You may have a sentence, but that's the rest of your life. So all of my contemporaries that I was in prison with and the women before me, most of them are all dead. You know, they died from cancer, rare cancers too. They died from hemorrhage. They died from, oh man, you name it. One right after the other, I could tell you. And, it's, and a lot of that, I believe, started in the prisons. Mary's story might be difficult and shocking to hear, but it underscores the need to rethink what we consider humane design. If prison is the punishment, should the design be? And if not, what are the alternatives? So far, we've looked at providing treatment centers like the Behavioral Care Center in Nashville that offers an upstream intervention that diverts those who are mentally ill from entering the criminal justice system. There are a variety of other preventative solutions, as Kemper pointed out, that could target some of the issues head-on, like building more shelters or providing spaces that offer addiction support or improving our classrooms to boost graduation rates. The second alternative is more of a restorative solution and requires us to look at the architectural landscape of prisons themselves and ask if change is needed. Again, what do we want these spaces to do? You know, in the workplace design world, we often use the phrase, the power of choice to describe the many, many opportunities an employee has to choose throughout the workday. Choosing everything from your desired place to work to the chair you sit in creates a positive effect on individual productivity and wellness. We believe in the domino effect that small, positive decisions can have on creating a better human experience that allows us to take on more personal responsibility and function optimally in society. So my question is this, who deserves the power of choice? I know this question might challenge some of our personal beliefs, but remember, what do we want these spaces to do? Traditionally, prisons are a place where choices are taken away. But could the micro-choices, like 
Choosing a chair be used as a tool to offer the opportunity to practice making better decisions. Could we then begin to incentivize those good choices? I think that in imagining future prisons and imagining what they're going to look like, the one outstanding model that I saw when I looked at the mass material was a model that was used with incentives. So you were incentivized to go to school. You were incentivized to model good behavior. You were incentivized to cooperate with your fellow citizens. Incentives work and they've always worked. So I would add, I think incentives are very important. Most of the time we articulate anything to do with the carceral system in terms of trying to target the individual who we think is bad or wrong. And we don't think about the larger issue of public safety. If you want people to be able to live safely in the free world, then you have to let people practice living safely in conditions that approximate the free world. So if there have to be some kinds of constraints because we need different kinds of protections to help keep people safe, okay. But ultimately, the system should be designed to help people do well when they're not in prison, which means that prisons need to look a lot more like the rest of the world. And also that we have to create opportunity and pathways for everybody, for education, for good health, both mentally and physically, for family reunification, for a sense that you could have a job that is fulfilling and that makes you want to do well in the world. When you talk about design features, I think the thing that it brings up for me is you're designing for someone's entire every minute of every day of their life. So it's hard for me to say there's these five things or these 10 things that need to be incorporated. Because I think if you think about how you live or how I live, we can't say that about our lives. And I, I think from a perspective of just having done some design work in it, you understand that that is a really hard task to narrow it down to like, how do I design to make someone's life humane? There's a prison in Norway that has embraced radical humanity in their design approach. Halden Prison basically created what appears more like a college campus than a maximum security facility. Amenities like workshops, game rooms, open kitchens, a sound studio, a library, and a rock climbing wall are all located in separate buildings contained within a secured perimeter fence. These spaces look a lot more like the behavioral care center And in the cells, you'll find windows, designer furniture, and flat screen TVs, all with the aim of providing a mirrored experience of the outside world. The value that Norway holds is that not being in society is the punishment, but the living conditions shouldn't be. Armed with the knowledge that prisoners will eventually return to society, giving them autonomy and practice to live well outside the prison will make all the difference in reentry success. There's a great video done by Vox on Halden Prison that I've linked in the show notes if you'd like more info. Sounds crazy, right? But Norway's recidivism rate is under 20%. To put that in perspective, the rate at which crimes are repeated after prison release here in the U.S. is above 50%. So I ask the same question that Mass Design Group did in the graduate studio at the University of Michigan. Can we design a humane prison? Yeah, I think the finding was that we can design humane systems. I How that manifests into physical buildings is not what we have today. And maybe that's not, maybe it's a new type of building that doesn't exist right now that is needs a new name and it doesn't 
we it, it's a like it's a collaboration of all the different things that you need when you're in prison. So I would say the solution is we can and have the ability to design systems with the right people in the room talking and understanding what the real problems are and how the new system gets its a physical space is the next step. But right now we're we're still at the point of needing the new system first. There's one last alternative to present from our research. The first was preventative, the second was restorative. This one is deconstructive. One way to completely dismantle the prison system that is very hard to implement in a country as large as ours, um, there's a model in Samoa, not American Samoa, which is colonized by the United States, but Samoa, which is not uh, colonized by the U.S. is a, a separate entity. And I had a friend who did field work there about restorative justice practices. There are no real prisons in Samoa. It's a very small place. Everybody knows each other. And when somebody commits a crime against the community, the community deals with it. The entire community sees itself in need of healing instead of just a crime victim or just a person who committed a crime. So my friend who did her her um, anthropological fieldwork there lived with a family for a time in which a husband had murdered his wife. And his punishment that the community collectively decided on was that he now needed to live with his wife's parents for the rest of their lives and care for them as a way to restore some aspect of what he had taken. But now he was responsible for those parents because he had taken their child. And, and it was tough. It was really tough for that family and for the whole community, but it was a way of living restorative practice in an ongoing way, as opposed to saying, we're just gonna throw him in a hole, we're gonna torture him, we're gonna do something to him as a way to punish him for this terrible thing that happened in the community. The community was interested in making sure that never happened to anybody else again. And that everybody would know that this was the way that we come together in the face of tragedy, as opposed to casting somebody out. And again, that's really complicated for a place as big as the United States and as complex as many kinds of crime are. But just knowing that that exists in the world gives me some hope that we could think about different ways to not need these buildings at all. While it may seem like a radical notion to get rid of these facilities completely, there are designers who are already leading this charge, like Deanna Van Buren at Designing Justice and Designing Spaces. In May of 2019, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms called for a team after passing a measure that asked for recommendations on how to transform the city's 471,000-square-foot jail. While it hasn't been decided on yet, the community is leaning towards creating a center for equity and wellness that offers a variety of services and resources to those who have been impacted by over-incarceration. For more info, check out the work Deanna is doing at designingjustice.org. While the term get-out-of-jail-free might negatively insinuate an escape from punishment or justice, under the right conditions, it just might be the best solution. For the person struggling with a mental crisis in public, Perhaps an alternative, like the Behavioral Care Center that doesn't conclude with a jail sentence, is actually a better alternative. 
And what if get out of jail free meant those serving a prison sentence could leave with the freedom to make good choices because they were allowed to practice in a space that mirrored the outside world? Even micro choices like furniture selection, lighting levels, temperature control, that are all supported by the design of the facility could have major implications for positive behavior. And finally, perhaps the title could simply mean what it says. And someday we could solve for not needing these prison structures at all. Where the escape could be some form of restorative justice that uses consequences instead of punishment. No matter what space you're in, whether it be high-tech virtual reality rooms, low-tech Moody's in Iraq, a sprinkle pool, vertical cities on Mars, and yes, even prisons, design makes the human experience better. It's been a pleasure exploring the alternative creative concepts that shake up stagnant thoughts and traditional ideas in order to start the conversations that spark positive change in our world. Thank you so much for listening. A huge thank you to everyone who listened, supported, and helped shape the Alternative Design Podcast. To Sheriff Hall, Ashley, Kemper, and Mary, thank you for lending your unique insights in this episode. Thank you to Kimball International for sponsoring this final episode. And as always, for more information, check out our show notes. And be the first to know when we plan to drop season two by following us on Instagram at the Alternative Design Podcast.